The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Take a look around. Right now you might be looking into a laptop that has an anodized aluminium outer shell. Or maybe you're wrapping the chicken with aluminium foil or driving a car with lots of aluminium around you. I wanted to think about aluminium and what it means for New Zealand's climate change ambitions because something's happened in the last 10 days that potentially changes our trajectory completely, creates all sorts of drama for our climate change hopes. And it's all because the price of aluminium has exploded in the last couple of years. And in particular, the last six months, it's been very strong. If I do one thing in this week's episode, it's to introduce a new word, backwardation. That is where the price of aluminium right now is above the price in the future because there's so much demand and so little supply that people who have futures contracts and don't have their hands on the physical metal are desperate to get their hands on it. It shows you a market that's really going nuts. Why? Because in China, the government there is reducing their coal-fired power emissions, or at least the growth in those emissions. Previously, they were churning out a whole new coal-fired power plant every week or two, and in many cases, that coal was used to generate aluminium. It zaps the alumina and turns it into a liquid metal, in many ways storing electricity in liquid or physical form. That's important because in New Zealand, we're really good at it. Take a drive or a train down to the bottom of the South Island to Bluff, where the TY Point smelter is a crucial part, not just of our economy, but of our climate change future. Over the other side of the island is the Manapuri Dam. Ironically, the place where the Green Party got its start. They were trying to stop that dam from being built. Now that it has been built, it is a massive source of renewable electricity. 13% of our production comes out of Manapuri. It goes straight across the island into the TY Point smelter and comes out as aluminium ingots to be exported to the rest of the world. Now, you might recall a couple of years ago, there was all this kerfuffle about whether TY Point would shut down or whether it would stay if it could get some cheap electricity from Meridian, the government-controlled power company. In the end, it did, but only on the condition that it would stay for a couple of years, that it would eventually shut down at the end of 2024. Well, the big news over the last couple of weeks is that because of this rise in the aluminium price, TY Point, or Rio Tinto, its its global company that runs it, has said, you know what, this is really good. We love these high prices and the profits. More than 50% profit margins for Rio Tinto at the moment. Hundreds of millions of dollars of profit each year being churned out of those pot lines at Bluff. They don't want to go. They're going to keep going after 2024, according to New Zealand aluminium smelters in a statement this week. Why is that important? Because unless we know it's going to happen at Bluff, we can't really plan to produce all of the new renewable electricity we'll need to convert our transport fleet. 
There was a time when that aluminium smelter was going to keep on going and there was a need to build a lot more wind and a lot more solar farm electricity. And the power companies were getting around to it slowly, but they had the consents in place and were looking to build it. Then there was some doubt about whether Rio Tinto would go, dump that electricity onto the market and therefore make it uneconomic to produce those new plants. So everyone put their plans on hold. And that certainty about when Rio Tinto was going to go gave everyone a lot of hope. The Climate Commission, for example, started planning for the end of TOI Point and being able to use the electricity in our transition to carbon zero by 2050 because that 13% of our power supply can now be used to generate electricity renewably instead of via that million tonnes of coal at Huntley. So it was really important we knew when it was going to stop and when we needed to build a lot more renewable electricity. But now, with Rio Tinto's decision to stay in New Zealand and keep producing after 2024, that has injected a huge element of uncertainty into the market, which we talk about with Climate Change Minister James Shaw. We ask whether or not it's good that Rio Tinto is staying or going and what that uncertainty means for the industry. I also spoke to University of Canterbury's director of its renewable energy program, Rebecca Peer, about what happens if Rio Tinto stays and if it goes, what are our options for using that supply in various different ways, including the potential for a hydrogen plant, one that converts that hydroelectric power into stored hydrogen energy that could be used to power trucks and cars and also use that power for data centres here uh, from that water instead of data centres overseas being powered by coal. So that's this week on When the Facts Change, a story about aluminium, about electricity, about tinfoil, also climate change. How are we going to deal with it? Now that we don't know when Rio Tinto is going to stay or go from Bluff. I'm Bernard Hickey. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Firstly, we speak to Climate Change Minister James Shaw in his office in Parliament. Well, welcome to James Shaw to the When the Facts Change uh, podcast. We are just talking there about how we're both running podcasts that are the most popular in the country. Uh, Let's make this um, even better by talking about how New Zealand might deal with TY Point staying here longer than we expected. If TY Point continues on into the indefinite future, how are we going to deal with the need for all of the Manapuri power to... um, get to somewhere near 100% renewable and, you know, reconfigure our transport fleet to LA? Uh, Well, I mean, the short answer is that you just have to build a whole lot more renewables and you have to do it sooner than you would have if that electricity from Manapuri had become available to the rest of the grid. Um, And so I think the main thing is that it is the uncertainty around uh, whether um, they stay or don't that is causing the generators to hold back investment on new generating capacity, right? So if, if, if they knew one way or the other, then they would 
you know, be able to kind of plan accordingly. It's like, yes, we will build now, or no, we won't build now, or, you know, th- those sort of considerations. Um, but surely that 13% of yeah, electricity supply is immediately there right now in huge volume and uh, could be used in the next five or six years, which is when we really need to reduce the emissions, to actually, you know, start powering up all these Teslas and various other things. Yeah, but if you look at the TransPower uh, projections, they think that over the course of the coming uh, couple of decades, two to three decades, that we're going to need about 70% more electricity generation in the country than we currently have today, right? So that's almost a doubling of the entire output of the grid that we've built over the last 100 years. You need to build that again inside uh, of of the next kind of, you know, 10, 20, 30 uh, years. So the kind of short answer is you need a lot uh, of additional generation that you don't currently have. My understanding um, from the industry is that the question is timing, right? When, when do you build that? Because if uh, TY closed tomorrow and that electricity suddenly became available, then um, that demand would still get soaked up within about five years, right? So you'd be kind of back at your starting position within a few years. But don't we actually need to you know, really move fast? And given that the um, power companies uh, are waiting to see whether or not TY goes uh, and therefore haven't made their commitments to invest in that 70 to 80% increase, um, surely you need TY Point to go to um, really get cracking. Because as we heard from Glasgow, it's the next 10 years that really matter. It's sort of game over if we haven't done it by then. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not convinced about that, actually. Um, I, I think that the... Um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm obviously not in the industry, but if I was in the industry, I'd be saying, just build, right? Build now. And and some of them are, right? So, you know, you've got the um, Tuhara Wind Farm and others that are kind of, you know, massive um, and getting up and running fairly, fairly quickly. If you knew that you were going to, within a fairly short period of time, need that electricity anyway, I guess the question is, why wouldn't you be building now, right? And I understand that there is some kind of short-term volatility, but given the life cycle of these assets, you know, wind farm, you're not looking at replacing the turbines for until about 20 years out, and then at that 20-year mark, the replacement value that, you know, cost is, you know, a fraction of what the original install cost is, is that you are going to recover that. So you might as well kind of get cracking early because you know that that demand is there. That's one point. Second thing is that there's no guarantee that that electricity uh, would suddenly become available to householders in Auckland to power their electric vehicles uh, as opposed to go to some other use. So, you know, we know that there are kind of big hydrogen um, uh, production uh, companies that are sniffing around (laughs) Manapuri as well, where, you know, the two key ingredients for hydrogen are water plus electricity, both of which are an ample supply down there. You know, we know that there's been reports around companies that are interested in um, data centres, which are very uh, hungry for power, and conveniently also a, cl- a cold climate that's kind of useful too. So, actually, that electricity could get used by you know two or three large industrial players, and still not become available to the rest uh, of the. It's country. pretty unlikely, though, isn't it? These hydrogen um, projects are still um, vaporware, really. If you look at the volume of um, 
that's actually been produced overseas and how long it would take to get this thing up and running, let alone consented. Um, really, isn't it just a distraction from the industry to avoid having to put this electricity onto the market, which Transpower are, are in the process of building the line so that it can be put into the market? Yes, well, but, but that to me is actually the relevant point, is one of the reasons that people are so circumspect about you know, the value of the smelter staying is that they've essentially um, kind of had the country over a barrel, uh, not just in terms of jobs in Southland, but also the use of that electricity and the volatility that gets introduced into the market by having uncertainty. Right? So if there is a cable that gives them some competition from Manapuri to the rest of the grid, whether they stay or they go, they're going to have to pay an honest price for that electricity because they're going to have the rest of the country to compete with. The rest of the country could be, like I say, people up in Auckland who are powering electric cars, or it could be other major industrials that want to move into Southland and have, have the use of that electricity. So that creates a level of certainty which then allows the electricity companies to say, actually, we are going to start bringing forward some of that investment and bringing some new assets online. But aren't we, in a way, outsourcing our climate change strategy to a bunch of commercial decision makers uh, at companies which three of the big five the government has a 51% stake in, in which, uh, in, in essence, you know, we're going to have to wait for a bunch of strategists and big fund managers to decide it's a good idea when we know it has to be done right now? That's a different question from the one about the electricity use and, and I think is a, is a valid one, right? So we don't have a, um, a full strategy around electricity generation and so on in the country yet um, and I know that that is something that Megan Woods, who's the responsible minister, is, is working on and it is something that the commission recommended that we get and, and get in fairly short order. Uh, but uh, I think that whether TY stays or goes, is, it may be less important in terms of that than, than people think that it is, including them. But the mere uncertainty of whether they do stay or go, I'm thinking of that Clash song, yes. stay or will they go, is enough to sort of freeze everyone in the headlights while we try to get a deal going. Wouldn't, yeah. it, be, wouldn't it be best for the government to you know, pull the trigger one way or the other so we can all move on? Well, let me answer that in a couple of different ways. So you were talking before about the impact of the Chinese aluminium industry and they produce aluminium dirtier than we produce here because the electricity that goes into their smelters is um, almost entirely based on coal where ours is entirely uh, renewable and zero carbon from Manapuri from hydro. So that gives our smelter a competitive advantage in the market for buyers who want the cleanest aluminium. It's not 100% clean, but it's cleaner than some of the alternatives. If it was to close, then actually global emissions from the aluminium sector go up. So to me, grappling with the challenge of TY is part of us taking responsibility for global emissions, not just those in New Zealand, and for what we consume. Because remember, from a consumption perspective, we are incredibly high emissions because we export largely, you know, kind of primary goods, and we import complex manufactured goods, and which is why our consumption emissions are so are so massive because 
as a consumer society, we you know, use a lot of aluminium and so on, most of which doesn't come from our own smelter. But the guts of it is we could have a big uh, carbon credit liability come 2030, 2035, which at the moment we're relying on paying someone else to get two-thirds of those credits. Um, and in effect, that it says it doesn't matter whether it, it increases or reduces global emissions, it's our emissions that matter when it comes to paying the bill. Well, if you look at the Commission's modelled pathways, they were only modelled pathways. And one of the things, so they're probabilistic scenarios, so one of the things that they factored in was the probability that TY was going to close, because at that point they had said that they were going to. They did not factor in the closure of the refinery in Northland, because at that stage the refinery had not said that they were going to close. Now, those two are similar in terms of their emissions profile within New Zealand. So if, as seems now a reasonably likely scenario, the refinery closes uh, but the smelter does not, then the impact on our emissions profile is actually... Uh, sorry, on the scenario that the... Um, on the emissions budget, which is based on the scenarios that the Commission produced, is actually very little. So it, it kind of evens out. And this is a point you know, that the Commission have made to us a number of times, is that um, projections are not predictions, uh, and what you need to do is you need to have quite a highly adaptive way of managing this, because you, whilst you're setting an absolute emissions cap in terms of your domestic emissions budgets, uh, you have to um, account for a number of scenarios that could occur within that. Right? And you have to be able to adapt and change as circumstances change. And we know, for example, you know, in the work that we're currently doing around the emissions reduction plan, you know, we've got these kind of various policy things you know, that we're proposing or will be proposing to say, well, this is how we're going to tackle that bit. And we've kind of modelled what we think the likely impact on emissions will be if we do do that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that is exactly what will happen. In fact... It almost certainly won't. So as we get sort of further down the path, we then have to kind of be getting the data and going, well, how, you know, what is the impact that this is having? Is it overachieving? Is it underachieving? Where else in the economy are we overachieving or underachieving? Kind of manage it dynamically and kind of swap overs and unders across. And so the situation around TY, certainly in terms of its direct emissions, is just one of those kind of overs and unders that gets factored in alongside everything else. But isn't that what, um, to be frank, politicians can point at whenever they don't want to take action now, that there could be some things in the future which happen which solve a problem, so don't worry, um, we've got it under control. It just means uh, that we don't actually have to do something right now. In this case, because you've got two things, one is an absolute emissions cap, so a budget that we have to live within, and a deadline, right? First deadline 2025, second deadline 2030, third deadline 2035. You absolutely have to act now, and you kind of have to pull every lever available to you to some extent. Uh, but the point is, is that as you pull those levers, you have to be aware that the impact of that may not be exactly what you think it is going to be, and therefore you need to kind of keep, you know, stay alert and be constantly, you know, um, allowing yourself to ad adapt to the changing circumstance. It's no different from the COVID-19 you know, scenario where you, know, you kind of 
develop a response mechanism uh, which sort of works for a bit and then turns out that a new variant behaves in a different way and completely blows your assumptions out of the water, you've got to change, change tap. Right? But the difference is under COVID, the government took leadership and control of the situation yeah. in concert with business and the unions to you know, do something that in the short term hurt, but mm. everyone agreed on it. And because the government was able to you know, change the law to get people to do things or not do things, um, it actually worked. Whereas in this case, you can't, in theory, direct the power companies, for example, to get cracking on the uh, building of these um, renewable plants or, for example, um, the various arms of government, which are way behind on their various climate Well, in, in relation to TY, I, I would argue that um, getting uh, the cable out from Manapuri to connect to the rest of the grid, um, essentially sending the message that there aren't going to be any further public subsidies of TY alongside that, means that the role that that has in the electricity market, they, they have less leverage than they have had at any point in history since it was built. Um, and that gives certainty to the generators who are considering making those investments, who also know exactly how much is going to be required and over what time period. Now, there are other things at play, right? Because if you go talk to any of the gen tailors, many of them will say, well, we would build right now, but the problem is it takes so long to consent a new project. I thought right? they already had a bunch of stuff consented. They do. That is a counter-argument, right? There's something like 3,800 megawatts of pre-consented wind kind of waiting to get built, and actually um, the new wind farm was one, of, one, was one of those. That's why it was so easy to kind of turn the tap on uh, quickly. But there are things that we could do in government, I think, that would kind of grease the pathway, if you like. That's probably an inappropriate metaphor to get some of that stuff built sooner. Such as? Well, like I said, in the regulatory environment, there may be things that we can do. Um, this is sort of outside my domain of responsibility because it is the Minister for Energy and Resources, Megan Woods, who's re who kind of leads on this stuff for the government. But I do know that they've got an active work programme looking at how can we accelerate the building of renewable electricity uh, in Aotearoa. More broadly, though, one of the um, restrictions in taking action is the government's um, balance sheet and it's the Public Finance Act, which mm. seems to have this North Star above everyone in government saying you need to get your net debt down to 20 yeah. to 30%. And that, in effect, means, as I understand it, that any climate change action basically has to be budget neutral. My understanding of the emissions trading scheme receipts is that that's the pot of money you can use to do your climate change stuff, and we're not planning anything more than that because the core aim of everyone in government all the time is to get net debt down to 20 to 30% while also not changing our tax system. Well, Bernard, as you know, um, I join you in the um, small but a uh, very discerning club of people who um, are, are interested in the Public Finance Act. If everyone knew how yeah. the entire government sees yes. that as its North Star. Yeah, well, you. I mean, I don't know if you heard me in Parliament the other day. I was responding to the Prime Minister's opening address, and, you know, one of the things that I said there is that, you know, we have over the course of the last sort of three decades or so 
had this overriding principle that your you know, government debt to GDP ratio is the single most important organising principle. And that has left us with a colossal def- deficit, not just in electricity generation and distribution, but in housing, uh, in public infrastructure like schools and hospitals, in transport, in three waters. I mean, you name a category of infrastructure, we've got a deficit that we're desperately attempting to kind of backstop now. So I completely agree with you. I think that we, that we absolutely need to, to, um, to reform that. Now, Grant has essentially said the same thing, right? He has said that he, is, he, he has committed himself to ensuring that whilst he wants to manage our debt responsibly, he is not prepared to repeat the system, you know, the, the kind of cycle where we shortchange ourselves on, on kind of core infrastructure. The other part of your, you know, what you were just saying is about the impact of what we're spending on from the ETS proceeds. So... When Grant announced that at Haifu back in December, uh, the projections were that that would bring in about $4.5 billion over the course of the next four years. Price of carbon has gone up since December, so those projections may change. We haven't got any further advice, so I can't give you a spoiler on what that may mean. But if you convert New Zealand dollars to euro, what we are spending as a proportion of GDP with that $4.5 billion is the same as what Germany is spending in their climate package, in their budget. And how much of that $4.5 billion, I know you can't tell me what's in the budget, but um, will be um, dedicated to this issue of building renewable energy capacity and also reconfiguring the transport fleet and other you know, boilers and stuff to use electricity? Heaps. <laughs> well, if you think about it, you know, the two, you know, transport and energy, stationary energy for industry as well as electricity generation, that is 50% of our emissions profile. And, and those are, and especially transport, where our, you know, the transport emissions profile has been growing at a faster rate than any other sector of the economy. I mean, it's pretty radical. And I know I read your pieces around... Um, you know, uh, double cab utes. Um, so th- th- those are things that we absolutely have to get on top of. And again, the Climate Change Commission pointed at that. So, yet, you know, again, having made precisely zero budget decisions, and this is not a budget announcement, um, you know, energy and transport are two areas that will receive a lot of focus as a result of the Climate Emergency Response Fund. Just um, to end up and perhaps zoom out a bit, um, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some poll results showing that human voters who own assets in cars, particularly homes and cars, actually, when they're asked the question, do you want to change your lifestyle in a way that would actually reduce emissions or on the separate, but you could argue related topic of housing affordability, mm. reduce the value of your assets. Only 40% of people would actually reduce their drive to deal with uh, this stuff. So we've got a basic problem here. Until centrist politicians actually take leadership and say to people, we're going to have to do some things that change your life and may actually be quite difficult in the short run mm. to deal with this not very long run <laughs> problem, uh, nothing's much going to change. You're going to see politicians look at the middle and go, oh, it hasn't moved. I wonder why. Because there's no leadership. Oh, well, you know, we'll wait for someone else to nudge it. Yeah. How, do you, how do you deal with that? Because you have to hook up with, well, only one of them to make it happen. Yeah. 
Well, Bernard, at one level, I completely agree with you, right? And I'll take off my climate change minister hat and I'll put on my Green Party co-leader hat for a second, right? So, you know, we have been saying for about 30 years that we need a capital gains tax or wealth tax, right, to help kind of even out not just the kind of inherent unfairness in our tax system where we tax people who work but not people who own productive wealth or unproductive wealth for that matter, but also because of the imbalances that that creates in our economy, right, where actually we do tip enormous amounts of capital into the housing market and trade up the value of those without actually investing in kind of businesses and and so on in that part of the economy. So at that level, I, I completely agree with you, and I think there has been a complete failure of leadership in this country, and I desperately want that to change. Uh, the second thing I'll say is when it comes to climate change, there is a polluter pays principle, right? Now, when I got into Parliament in 2014, from memory, I might be wrong about this, I think that the price of carbon was about $17 a tonne. Um, and I think it had been trading as low as about $2.50 a tonne only a couple of years before that. Now, close of trading yesterday, I think from memory it was about $84.50 a tonne. So as a result of what we have done, polluters are finally starting to pay a more realistic price uh, for their pollution. That does two things. It brings in revenue that actually means that we can put billions and billions of dollars towards climate action that wasn't available previously even within the constraints of the Public Finance Act, which you already know my thoughts on. Um, But also, it gives an incentive to those businesses to do something differently, which was kind of the whole point of having a price signal in the first place. Now, some of them are now kind of starting to chafe at that, but that's a good sign, right? That's a sign that it is actually starting to bite, and they might actually have to do something differently. And is that price now being translated into budget decisions and treasury cost-benefit analysis at you know, cabinet level uh, with realistic prices that might be triple-digit prices so that you know, when we make decisions about um, you know, roads or motorways or houses or all of the things the government is making decisions, multi-billion dollar decisions on every day, that actually takes into account that a decision to do something or to not do something could actually lead to a massive liability yes. that should be reflected in the in the Crown's balance sheet. Yeah, um, so this is an area where we've made some progress, but not as much progress as I would like. Um, so Treasury last year uh, introduced shadow carbon pricing into budget bids, but I think as a sort of a voluntary measure, right? So they're kind of walking into it. And there is a capability issue in government, which is that we don't have experts in carbon pricing in every government agency. Um, And we've got a few in Ministry for the Environment, but they're somewhat overworked, right? So we introduced the Climate Impact of Policy Assessment. Some question, isn't Treasury supposed to employ and train people to do that? Uh, Well, yes, ideally. And and actually, they they do now have a specialist climate unit within Treasury that's been stood up within the last 12 months. Um, I, I would have liked them to have stood that up, you know, 30 years ago, but, you know, <laughs> we are where we are. So there is a, and, and I know that they're reviewing that um, uh, shadow um, price system. They're, all, they're also reviewing the climate impacts of policy assessment tool that we introduce in every cabinet paper to try and get more sophisticated about, you know, those, those assessments. And I do know that, you know, there are, there are areas where, um, we are almost certainly paying for the cost of carbon 
in certain areas of government without necessarily knowing that we are. And I'll give you an example. When we build a highway or a railway uh, or a bridge, we build it out of cement, concrete, you know, and they are exposed, at least at the margin, to a price on carbon, ETS unit price. Uh, And so we, through NZTA, Waka Kotahi, will be absorbing some of that price, but we're not necessarily seeing it itemised as in here is the cost uh, of all of the cement in terms of its carbon price. It would be very useful for that to be made visible to government so that we could start to say, look, are there either alternative building materials that we could or should be using uh, and or um, are there ways that we can kind of be more efficient about, you know, uh, those kinds of materials and so on. And so it's not. I don't think it's kind of yet at the point where government departments and agencies are making different choices, but we are moving towards that for sure. James Shaw, thank you very much. Um, all that nerdy geeking out on carbon pricing and liabilities and the electricity system is a guaranteed podcast hit. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks to James Shaw there for some great podcast content. Next up, we speak to Rebecca Peer, who is the Director of the Renewable Energy Program at the University of Canterbury. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both the recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply, and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Well, kia ora, and welcome to Rebecca Peer, who is the Director of Renewable Energy, the programme there at Canterbury University. Rebecca, welcome in to When the Facts Change. Kia ora, thank you. Now tell us, how important is this TY point chunk of electricity in our uh, renewable energy future, and hopefully getting to carbon zero by 2050? That's a very good question and a good place to start. 
it is very important. So the Manipur Dam makes up um, a significant chunk of our electricity generation now um, and a planned significant chunk of our electricity generation in the future as well. And so the question of what happens with that electricity, which is currently being used all towards the TY Point smelter, is huge. That's a big question mark, and it's very, very important. It's important for our pathway to um, carbon zero electricity generation um, in terms of that 2030 goal that the government has set, as well as our net zero carbon commitments for 2050. Because the Climate Commission uh, was expecting, as many of us were, that TY Point would finish at the end of 2024, and that 13% of the power would be available, because they're building some extra lines across the hill, into the rest of the grid. And uh, the hope was, or the thought was, that this power would come onto the market, there'd be a slight reduction, or maybe slightly bigger than slight reduction, in electricity prices and encourage us all to plug in our cars. But what happens to that strategy if... Rio Tinto says, no, we want to keep those pot lines running after 2024. We're making lots of money. You can't have that 13%. Yeah, that's correct. Um, basically, the entirety of our modeling and planning and future ideas about our energy system, particularly our electricity system, has been based on this promise that TY is shutting down in 2024 and therefore that electricity becomes available for our use, whether that's um, putting it back onto the grid like you talked about or in some other um, shape or form. Many ideas floating around for that one. But if that's not available, then we basically need to fill the void with something else. So whether that comes from you know, additional solar or wind or geothermal or perhaps another form of electricity could be more hydroelectricity, although I would say that's probably unlikely um, in terms of physical generation plants, um, still remains a question. And that will depend on sort of resource consents and availability and land and you know, investments. And, and there's a lot of factors at play there. Um, but the basic idea is that if we don't have that 13% and we've currently planned for it, then we need to make up for it somehow. So who would be making the decisions about uh, whether and when to spend these billions of dollars on the wind farms or the solar farms? So someone has to make those decisions. Who are those people? And what are the things they have to think about? Because my understanding is that we need to make these decisions pretty quick if we're going to get anywhere near our 2030 goals or 2050. Yes, uh, you are absolutely right. It is, it is not a, a, a pipe dream anymore. Um, it is a commitment that we've made and the commitment is very fast approaching. So for a lot of us, I think 2030 seems far away. But when you sit down and think that, wow, we're actually in 2022, that's only eight years from now. How long does it take us to build energy infrastructure? Quite a while. Um, okay, so in order for us to get from where we are now to where we need to be, um, that's a huge challenge. That's a huge infrastructure challenge. That's a huge investment challenge. That's a huge policy challenge. That's a huge social challenge. There's so many aspects that touch um, touch into energy um, that we need to think about when we're moving towards this goal. 
Um, but yes, we need to think about them quickly um, and we need to take some action. And so to answer your question, it's, it's a bit of a combination. So um, there are incentives and policy um, implications that can be put on to companies by the government. Um, and so a little bit of that decision-making comes from the upper level. Um, then there's also decision-making that can happen, um, you know, from the electricity companies themselves. So um, people like Meridian and Contact and, and these, all these names that, that you guys would be familiar with, um, they're also making decisions about what types of resources they're going to provide to their customers and how big do they need to grow their company, how much more electricity do they need to provide, what kind of electricity is that, or where, where is it going to come from, um, you know, where are they going to build these new things, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then some of that comes from pressure from underneath. So there's a top-down response and there's a bottom-up response. So we as everyday citizens can also do a little bit um, to try and push in that direction and be vocal about, you know, what we want to see in that, that 100% uh, renewable electricity goal. Yeah, because this uncertainty about Rio Tinto means that those decision makers, be it a government or the big power companies, really don't know what the price is going to be for the next 10, 20 years or what the supply will be. They've got a bit of an idea about the demand, but until you know, you know, will they stay or will they go, it's hard, hard to be making these big calls for years and years and years when we actually need to be making them now. Yes, it's incredibly difficult. And I think a big word to associate with that is uncomfortable. Um, it makes us uncomfortable to live in this space of uncertainty and it makes us uncomfortable to make decisions that have large uncertainty associated with them. Um, but that is a little bit the reality that we are living in. Um, although some of the work that we're trying to do um, with my group and other groups at the university is to try and reduce some of that uncertainty. So we'll work on, you know, models and sort of future planning that investigates all these different possibilities and tries to look at all of those different what if scenarios so that we can get a better idea or at least a smaller bound on the uncertainty to try to help inform some of those policy and investment decisions as best as we can. And I think that's that's sort of the name of the game right now is try to make the best decision that we can with the information that we do have. Yeah, the, the, the other big factor in here is that the um, electricity producers are thinking ahead about the potential departure of Rio Tinto and looking for replacements for that demand, potentially a hydrogen plant, i.e. turning that renewable electricity into hydrogen, effectively storing that electricity in something that could be used in a truck or a ship, uh, um, maybe not an airship, but <laughs> uh, but something that uh, could use that electricity, or building a bunch of data centres um, in and around the bottom of the South Island. Uh, what's your thought on the the um, potential for hydrogen and data centres to use that electricity. And is that, is that a good idea, given that, you know, we're currently burning more than a million tonnes of coal up in, up in Huntley? Yeah, I think that is another very large question mark. Um, yeah, there's a lot of news and media and interest around these new ideas um, particularly hydrogen. 
So that's a pretty big name in the energy world right now. Um, it's sort of regaining traction after 30 years of relative quiet. Um, yeah, and I think it's not unreasonable to ask those questions. We know that our energy future and our energy transition is going to be made up with a combination of technologies, um, different fuel sources, different generating technologies. And we know that that transition and you know what, ends, what it ends up looking like on the, the outside or the, the finished product is going to look different across the world. So a solution that might work for a country in the middle of Europe um, may or may not work for us here in the middle of the South Pacific. And so I don't think it's unreasonable to ask those questions, even if somebody, some people think maybe that's a crazy idea. I think we are at a time where we do need to explore those crazy ideas a little bit, um, but we also need to explore them rigorously, um, you know, through rigorous analysis and, and making sure that we've um, done due diligence to try and figure out if those alternatives actually make sense from um, from an economic perspective, uh, from a social perspective, and also from an environmental perspective. So we know that everything has trade-offs um, and it's our job, um, or at least <laughs> I feel like it's my job as an academic um, to try and help quantify what those trade-offs are um, and help make those decisions moving forward. So uh, some people will have heard about these hydrogen ideas. Uh, we've We've got an announcement this week from... Uh, um, Meridian Energy and Contact Energy that they've shortlisted uh, a bunch of companies, including Mitsui, Fortescue, uh, BOC and Woodside as uh, potential partners here. So they're not small operations. Um, but but how, how much progress has there been in doing this conversion of electricity to hydrogen at scale around the world? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the conversion of, of electricity into hydrogen um, is not necessarily a new, <laughs> it's not really a new idea. It's, it's something that we very much know how to do. Um, you know, it's a, it's a well-proven process. We understand the limits. We understand the efficiency. Um, it's a question, a previous question of investment. So the scale at the present moment is not very large, but I think the potential for that to get large very quickly exists. So there's lots of um, there's lots of interest internationally, not just in New Zealand, but investment in places like Germany and Japan, um, who are are basically putting money into this technology to try and see that get to scale. Um, and so it is. It is happening one way or another. Um, and so I think we're sort of in that decision space of whether or not that makes sense um, for us to also also be at scale here in New Zealand. Now, the other um, side of the equation is demand. We're talking here about supply. Uh, what options are there to um, perhaps deal with the issue by demanding less of some of the things that we currently use electricity for? Obviously, if we're going to switch to zipping around on scooters and Teslas, um, we're going to increase the demand there. But there may be ways we can reduce the demand elsewhere. So on the demand side, you know, how could we solve this problem, assuming that, let's say, TY Point keeps going and we can't just access that 13% and we have to solve the problem from the other side of the equation? Yeah, 
you're absolutely right. Definitely two sides of this equation. And we can't neglect the demand side either. Um, and it does, it, it does influence how much we need to supply. So um, the answer is a lot. There is a lot that we can do. And I think the, the question is how much are we able to do in the amount of time that we have to accomplish that. So there are things like smart technologies, for example, or things like demand side management, where we manage when and how we use electricity inside of the buildings or that we work in or inside of our homes, for example. And there are also things like, um, you know, improving the insulation in our homes. We are notoriously bad for having poorly insulated homes. Um, that's a huge sink of energy. So whether you're heating your home with electricity or you're using, you know, any other type of energy it could be um, some type of gas, or maybe you're even still heating your home with a wood stove. Um, when you don't have good insulation, that's incredibly inefficient. And that's true for our insulation in our walls, as well as our windows, you know, single pane windows is um, very common. Um, and so that's another big thing as well. And something as small as that, um, that can really shift um, the, how much energy, how much electricity we're demanding um, in particular. And just finally, um, looking at this problem from another angle is distributed generation, particularly solar. You know, it might be on roofs or it might be in a solar farm in a particular city. I understand there's one being built out at the airport in Christchurch. Uh, um, how much of a role should distributed uh, generation solar, rooftop solar um, be in trying to deal with this issue if, for example, we can't get our hands on that Rio Tinto power? I think that there is a role for distributed generation to play, absolutely. Basically, my stance on the issue is anything that's contributing to helping solve this issue um, whether it's big or small, is a worthwhile contributor. We know that we need to have a mixture um, of technologies and solutions to reach that 100% renewable goal. Um, and even if our distributed solar generation is 2% of our electricity demand or 2% of our electricity generation, that's 2% that we didn't have to get elsewhere from some other technology, possibly even from fossil fuels, like from coal power at Huntley Power Plant, for example. Um, so that can be a really big deal. It might seem insignificant, but it does have a role to play, especially when we get up closer to that sort of 97, 98, 99% renewable energy. Um, and it's a relatively simple thing for us to do, you know, day to day in our houses, I suppose. Um, although it's not affordable for everybody to get those solar panels on their roofs, um, for the people that it is affordable, it is helpful, um, so would I love to see everybody having solar on their roofs and being able to contribute that way? Absolutely. Um, I think that would be great. Um, but like I said, as much as possible um, is good. Yeah. Anything we can do to get towards that goal is, is good. Fantastic. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on When the Facts Change. Rebecca is the Director of Renewable Energy at the University of Canterbury. Thank you. Kia ora. Thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.